Does any of this sound familiar? According to historian Edward Gibbon, there were five obvious failures for the collapse of the Roman Empire. First, there was concern with showing off personal wealth over improving society for the future. Second, obsession with sex and perversions. Three, art became outrageous and sensational instead of creative and original. Four, there was a widening disparity between the very rich and the very poor. And five, an increased demand to live off the state. Our own civilization is doomed the same way without restoring biblical standards. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darg, the historian Edward Gibbon, who wrote The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, said that the five marks of the Roman decaying culture were concern with displaying affluence instead of building wealth, obsession with sex and perversions, art became freakish and sensational instead of creative and original, there was an increased disparity between the very rich and the very poor, and an increased demand to live off the state. All of this has happened in the West, and we have certainly been reaping the whirlwind in our culture. There's a famous line from the comic strip Pogo, we have met the enemy, and he is us. What does it say about contemporary society when it rejects beauty and embraces all that is ugly and grotesque. Roger Kimball is an art critic and social commentator who has been called America's most persuasive voice of cultural conservatism. He writes about art for publications in both Britain and America and is the author of a number of books on how politics has corrupted higher education and how the cultural revolution of the 1960s undermined society. Kimball believes the debased condition of present-day intellectual and cultural life is reflected in the degraded state of art and beauty. Now he has contributed to a new book, Up from Conservatism, Revitalizing the Right After a Generation of Decay. The book includes essays on how the left has transformed the USA, racking up victory after victory with no clear end in sight. The nation's educational establishment is not teaching the highest values of civilization, but is advocating for its destruction. Dark forces are undermining everything from family values to art, education, and politics. Beauty is turned into ugliness, not just in museum exhibits, in galleries and bookstores with disgusting novels, but in everyday life, ugliness, sloppiness, and pornography are promoted. In the U.S. Senate, now hoodies and shorts are allowed on the floor. Furthermore, Kimball decries the spectacle of parents going to school boards to plead with teachers to remove pornography and trans activism from classrooms and libraries, but instead parents are dragged away by police. 
political correctness has sabotaged art in every aspect of society. Well, we're beginning to see some pushback, and it's incumbent upon believers who care about the future of our culture to encourage and cultivate beauty, order, holiness, and the sanctity of life. The problem, of course, is that God has been removed from our culture. And tragically, confusion inevitably results in anarchy and spiritual darkness, such as the current confusion over sexual identity. We wonder, did Jesus have anything to say on the gender issue? And yes, he did. At the beginning of Matthew chapter 19, some Pharisees came to test Jesus, asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason? When answering, Jesus forever put to rest the issue of how many genders there are. Quoting the book of Genesis, his reply came in Matthew 19.4 as a rebuke. Jesus said, Have you not read that from the beginning the Creator made them male and female? Two genders. For this reason, he said, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. Therefore, he said, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Well, the artificial intelligence programmers are trying to reinvent Jesus in their own image to make him say things that he never said. But I've just read to you the record in the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus said there are only two genders, male and female. Cultural decay in the West is certainly a real concern among those who are praying for an awakening and revival. According to the Russian dissident Alexander Solzhenitsyn, decline in courage became the most striking feature of the West. Such a decline in courage is particularly noticeable among the ruling and intellectual elites, causing an impression of a loss of culture by the entire society. Part of the lack of culture in pulpits today has been the trend to reject eschatology. That's the study of the end times. And this is intensely ironic because we are experiencing the signs of the second coming of Jesus pressing down on us like birth pains. But this lack of teaching on the end times robs God and the Lord of their glory. If you believe it doesn't matter whether or not we study eschatology, you're very much mistaken. There should be an intense desire for God to be glorified in the world. And so to deny that Jesus is returning or to ignore the subject altogether robs him of the glory that he's due. Denial of eschatology says the second coming of Jesus is not important. It's irrelevant. But it is intensely important. The artificial intelligence gurus talk of the future far in the distance as if Jesus never returns. They rob him of glory as the coming king. Yet the amount of detail that's given prophetically in the Bible about the end times is staggering. So much of the Bible is apocalyptic and prophetic because God wants us to know the future. And it gives him glory for us to learn the end of history and to know that history is headed toward a climax, the return and rule of King Messiah. The study of biblical eschatology also gives us hope. 
People are simply robbed of hope and comfort when eschatology is not taught. And while I was thinking about all of this, I received an email containing an article by Andrew Hall from the Washington Stand news site that's published by the Family Research Council. The article encouraged believers not to be afraid of eschatology, but to embrace it because the gospel is undeniably eschatological in purpose. The gospel story is not finished. While Jesus did achieve atonement for us, hallelujah, yet the rest of his story still must unfold concerning the second coming to fulfill more Bible prophecies and restoring the kingdom to Israel. And of course, Israel's final redemption. Believers can understand eschatology by studying the spine of Bible prophecy, Matthew chapter 24. After all, the primary goal of studying eschatology is to cultivate a deeper love and desire for the return of our Lord and Savior. So please understand that the gospel message encompasses more than the atonement, eternal life, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' mission was to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom, announcing the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel, to the promised seed, the promised land, and the future promised kingdom. So the gospel is inherently eschatological, pointing to the return of King Jesus, pointing to the establishment of God's eternal kingdom of righteousness and our deliverance from this present evil age, the restoration of all things. And the biblical word that embodies this gospel message is Maranatha. That's an Aramaic term in the New Testament, meaning our Lord come. This longing for the Lord to return culminates in Revelation 22 with the Spirit and the Bride saying together, Come, Lord Jesus. One of the signposts of eschatology is that there will be a time of society degeneration. When, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.13, evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. God wants us to be discerners of these times. First Chronicles 12.32 praised the sons of Issachar, who were men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. Having biblical discernment is, I believe, of paramount importance. We may think that attempting to be a voice of truth in our generation is particularly difficult, but the history of the church shows that fierce levels of spiritual warfare have always existed. Those of us who stand up for morality in the Word of God will be accused of being out of our minds when in reality, it's the other way around. Consider, for example, the prophet Jeremiah in the Hebrew Bible. He was persecuted and contradicted by both the monarchy and the false prophets for speaking truth. Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet because he stood alone declaring God's words while his beloved nation continued to reject the path of life. All the rejection and the personal isolation cost Jeremiah greatly. And those of you who are called to the ministry will certainly understand. Ministry can often be a lonely place, and many will abandon you. Those who heed God's call suffer many abuses 
as well from an ungodly world. As A.W. Tozer wrote, always remember, a man may be surrounded by a vast crowd, but his cross is his alone to carry. Jeremiah's cross, so to speak, was remaining obedient to his role as God's prophet, while others were prophesying politically correct lies. Jeremiah bore his office with courage as the weeping prophet. And many today who've been called by God understand Jeremiah's position. Our voices and opinions often seem lost, censored, or drowned out. Some professing believers respond to cultural insanity with angry tirades and name-calling. And of course, their exasperation does nothing to further the cause of God. But many others sigh and cry, as did Jeremiah, for the fate of family, friends, and nations who have been deceived. I once heard a rabbi say in one of our conferences that of all the Hebrew prophets, the one who most resembled Jesus was Jeremiah because of the contradictions that they both endured. Think about this. Jesus was the embodiment of truth, yet there was a time when even his own family set out to oppose him, to try to restrain him. In Mark chapter 3, we read of opposition to Jesus from family, friends, and foes. When he entered a home, once again a crowd gathered, and such was the pressure of the crowd that Jesus and his disciples couldn't find time to eat a meal. Jesus' family came to take custody of him, saying, He is out of his mind. Seeing how he was thronged and how he gave himself unreservedly to the people, his family tried to control him, for they said, He is beside himself. This episode is mentioned only by St. Mark, who was the secretary for the Apostle Peter. When Jesus' loved ones saw him neglecting his bodily necessities, they considered that he was bereft of his senses, and they believed that too much zeal and piety had deranged his mind. John 7, 5 also tells us that even his own brothers didn't believe on him. They had not yet become his followers. I'm sure this resonates with anybody whose family and friends have not understood your faith and zeal. But in reality, those whose hearts have been enlarged in the work of God can more easily bear with inconveniences. They trouble themselves. God's servants would rather lose a meal than forfeit an opportunity to help desperate people. My husband and I got a taste of what it was like in Bible days when we ministered in remote villages in Pakistan, far from the cities. We were staying in a village home and sleeping in a bedroom behind a curtain, and the washroom facilities were outdoors in a separate shed. From early in the morning, people peered at us from behind the bedroom curtain, waiting for us to awaken. The villagers all around the premises were waiting expectantly for prayer and ministry, which we were blessed to share when we went outdoors early in the morning. The interference of Jesus' family teaches us that we must expect hindrances, even from the misplaced affections of family and friends. But the test of relationship with Jesus was obedience to his heavenly father. His relationship with his father in heaven surpassed all earthly relationships and obligations. Well, besides pressures from his family, in Mark chapter 3, we also learn that Jesus was charged with madness and demonic possession by jealous 
resentful religious leaders who came to watch and criticize his every move. The malice of critics is continually a part of the ministry scene. There's no escaping criticism if you wish to serve the Lord. And Mark 3.22 records, And the teachers of the religious law who had come down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And they said, By the prince of demons, he drives out demons. One of the most prominent characteristics in the ministry of Jesus was the expulsion of evil spirits, but by the very finger of God. The power of his ministry was beyond question. People were instantly cured of insanity and every manner of disease, lameness, blindness, and leprosy. The religious establishment resorted to slander by saying Jesus was possessed by Beelzebub, the chief of devils, Satan himself. They had heard this allegation and gave an emphasis by saying, not only has he a devil, but he is possessed by the chief of the devils. On the other hand, the multitude were free from prejudice and they readily acknowledged the greatness of the Lord's miracles as being wrought by divine power. And Jesus gave an awful warning to the religious hierarchy that speaking such blasphemous words would result in an eternal sin. Tragically, such blasphemies are still possible today when religious people think they can speak indiscriminately because they may have knowledge of scriptures, perhaps university degrees, high positions, and so forth. Now, let's consider another man of God in the Bible who was accused of insanity. Not only did Jesus' family believe he was out of his mind, but also the Apostle Paul was accused of insanity by Festus, the Roman governor of Judea. In Acts chapter 26, as a prisoner, Paul was very powerfully giving his defense and his Damascus Road testimony before King Agrippa and the governor Festus. At one point, Festus interrupted Paul, exclaiming in a loud voice, Paul, you are insane. Your learning is driving you to madness. But Paul held his ground and retorted diplomatically, most excellent Festus, I am not insane. I am speaking with truthful and rational words. Likewise, today, many governments are charging believers who are speaking truth and rational words with insanity and many other false charges. But this has been the fate of faithful men and women in all ages who are hated because they are truth tellers. Their version to truth is dangerous for at least three reasons. Number one, John 17, 19 teaches that truth sanctifies us. It sets people apart, causing us to become holy. Secondly, Jesus said in John 8, 32, that the truth makes people free. The light of truth dispels darkness and breaks the chains of evil strongholds. And thirdly, truth has the power to save sinners. According to 1 Timothy 2.4, God our Savior desires everyone to be saved by coming to the knowledge of the truth. And as the saying goes, right is right if nobody is right, and wrong is wrong if everybody is wrong. Many pulpits that should be speaking out are afraid to lose followers, and this certainly seemed to happen during the COVID episode. A stupor enshrouded the minds of people around the world. 
Not only did anxiety and depression overwhelm hearts and minds of people who were secluded and in quarantine, but the church was lulled to sleep with what began as only 15 days to slow the spread. But we now know that those 15 days stretched out to more than two years of living with regulations. Eventually, the church woke up to discover that biological men were competing in female sports. And in some places, parents were ordered to affirm the gender choices of their very young children. Some schools started keeping secrets, turning children against their parents. And if the parents objected, their custody can be threatened. Do parents have rights once children enter the classroom? Well, both the chief executive of the USA and certain partisan groups vowed that they were coming after our children, and they claimed that our children belonged to them. Ultimately, of course, children belong to God. Yet recently, the California legislature approved a bill that would criminalize parents who do not affirm a child's decision to change their identity and undergo radical surgeries and so forth. As a result, many more parents are choosing to homeschool. You see, it's so important to teach children biblical truths from an early age. Just the other day, I read an admonition, and it's certainly worthy of repeating. See that your children don't just read the Bible, but read it reverently. Train them to look upon this book, not as the word of men, but as it truly is, the word of God, written by the Holy Spirit. See that they read it regularly, and you need not shrink from bringing any doctrine to their attention. Children understand far more of the Bible than we may think. So let's fill their minds with Holy Scripture and let the Word of God dwell in them richly. Give them the whole Bible while they're young. Tragically, many churches and pastors no longer will preach the Bible but instead pander to popular opinions, and even some apostate churches go along with redefining marriage. But just because something is legalized does not mean God approves. There's just too much fear of men in the ministry today. Believers do have their times, I acknowledge, of genuine fear. David brought perfect balance to the subject when he said in Psalm 56, 3, the day I am afraid, I will trust in you. He was saying, when I feel fear stealing over me, by an act of my will, I'm going to decide to put my trust in the Lord. Trust is a favorite word of King David, often occurring in the Psalms attributed to him. Psalm 56 was written at one of the low points of David's life when he was hunted by King Saul. It's when we're afraid that we have to trust in God not when the sun is shining. It's when the waves threaten to drown us. And at that point, it's wisdom and peaceful to say, I will trust in you, O Lord, and not be afraid. Scholars tell us the word trust has a cleaving aspect, cleaving unto the Lord. That's faith, to cleave tight. And such trust brings tranquility. In Joshua 23, 8, the Israelites were exhorted to cleave unto the Lord your God. And Psalm 63, 8 declares, My soul clings to you, and your right hand upholds me. 
So then the way to become brave and to be a voice of truth and reason is to learn to lean on God. That and that alone delivers us from reasonable fears. The enemy of our souls wants us to live in dread and fear. Indeed, he uses fear as a weapon against us. But God repeatedly tells us in his word not to be afraid, not of men, of war, of tribulation, of pandemics. Yes, don't even be afraid of death itself. Now, beginning with 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the Apostle Paul very carefully outlined all the categories of sins that disqualify people from inheriting the kingdom of God. The exclusion of all unrighteousness from heaven is certain. Paul said, do not be deceived. And he lists all the degrading sins, sins of sensuality, sins of idolatry, theft, coveting, extortion, drunkenness, sins of the tongue like foul language. Plainly, we're taught that a nominal faith can never save us. And after writing his long list, Paul adds, But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. So you see, the washing of our sins by the atoning blood of Jesus cancels and blots them out. Some of you right now may be battling suicide, anger, the feeling that God doesn't exist, that God's not been there for you. Or you may be battling thoughts of confused identity, depression, anxiety, lost hope for your marriage. But we want to give you the Lord's invitation to be born again and to receive his supernatural peace. And how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, one that is free for all, no matter what is your ethnic or religious background? Just tell the Lord, I do want to be born again. And dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe that you took all of my sins upon your own body on the cross. You took my shame and my guilt. You died for it. You faced hell for me so that I wouldn't have to go there. And you rose from the dead to give me a place in heaven and a purpose on earth until you come. So my friend, I want to assure you that if you prayed that, I want you to know that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was God's amen to his atoning work that he faithfully accomplished on the cross for you and me. The resurrection was God's vindication on the claims of Jesus as the Son of God. And as an evangelist of Jerusalem's empty tomb, I assure you, along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 10, 9, that if you have declared with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Amen. Well, now I want you to please take advantage of our website, exploits.tv, which has all of our videos and reports on Bible prophecy and end-time events, and at our Jerusalem Channel app, as well as our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site, you can watch our library of videos 24-7. My friends, the kingdom of God is at hand. Soon we will hear the sound of the shofar and see the coming of King Yeshua. In the meantime, if you have any questions, feel free to contact me on social media. 
And you'll find all of my extended ministry articles free to read on Substack. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. And you know me, I'll always be contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. Shalom. I'm Christine Dart. A new day begins over Jerusalem's Western Wall Plaza, where Jews and Christians from all over the world gather to worship, pray, and petition the God of Israel. The Holy City is a unique mix of tradition, history, and religious fervor that makes it the center of the world. Through your support of the Jerusalem Channel, we're able to present to a global audience a spiritual insight into the Bible and Bible prophecy that will impact your life. Thank you for being part of these programs. To make a gift, visit our website at jerusalemchannel.tv or download our free Jerusalem Channel app where you can donate by credit or debit card. Celebrate with us this ancient capital that will one day soon be the worship center of the Messiah.